Well, good morning. Uh, as John said, my name is Ryan Moore. I'm one of the pastors here, so it's good to be with you. Just got to get this out of the way. If you are feeling seasick at any time of the sermon, we have exits on the sides and back. That dad joke was so bad, I could not not share it with you. So I just had to get that out of the way. It was, oof. Um, anyways, it's great to be with you. Uh, we are in Psalm, the Psalm book. Well, we're going through Psalms this summer. And this morning we'll be in Psalm 84. So if you have a Bible, I'll go ahead and open it up to Psalm 84. Or if you're using the Pew Bible, just go to the middle and then move along till you find 84. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. To the choir master, according to the... The Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell. In, the, in your house, ever singing your praise, Salah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Salah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. This morning, gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for what we have just read and heard, and we pray now that you would graciously give us your spirit, that you would open our eyes and ears, that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. And we pray this for your glory alone, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we heard this psalm read, and as maybe you've read this before from the very beginning, uh, we meet someone who clearly has a joy and desire to be near the Lord. Of course, that is the author. Many call this a psalm of longing, and that's what we are going to be looking at this morning. Why does this psalmist have such desire to be in God's presence? That his soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, or to be in God's presence. Why is, how does he have that? Why is that the way that he is? And, and how might we begin to enter in and, and, and actually have some of that longing too? Is really the question that I'm after. Because as I read this, this seems a little over the top to me. Uh, I mean, what have any of us really longed for? Yes, even fainted for this week. Uh, besides season three of Stranger Things. Not much, right? My cynicism tends to flare when I read psalms like this. Not sure if that's you too this morning. 
So I want to know why. What makes the psalmist long to be in God's presence in this way? And how can we begin to have that same longing today as well? Because for the Christian, pushing back a little bit on my own cynicism, for the Christian, if there is zero longing to be in God's presence, right? if there's zero longing to be with him, then that's not good either. Something is wrong. Something is very wrong. How do we become a people who truly long for God to be in his presence the way that this psalmist longs to be with God and to be in his presence? How would it be, uh, what would it look like to make the words of this psalm our own? And so I want to see why this author, I want you to see why this author longs to be uh, in God's presence. And then to see how we might begin to do that as well, to long to be with him because of, his, because of God's invitation to him, as you see there on your bulletin, because of the strength that he finds in God and the life-givingness that God gives him in his grace. Okay? So we'll take those three in that order. Let's look at the invitation of God that he receives. This is a psalm, as we read, of the sons of Korah. Uh, the Korites were a branch of the Levites given the job of caring for the temple. Some commentators go on to kind of just call them janitors. Um, but they actually lived and worked in the temple. And it's these workers, it is those who tend to God's house that are not tired of being there. At least this guy. They are literally, quote, ex- exhausted, as the first couple of verses say, exhausted from longing for the very courts that they actually traffic every day. Verse 2, my heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Now, is that what it's like for you? When you walk into your workplace tomorrow morning, maybe, boy, my heart has just fainted and longed to be here. Probably not. Uh, that, that is really what we're getting as we look at who wrote this psalm. And, and that is, that's, I'm curious about that. Because it's usually the opposite, right? It's usually those who are far off, those whose hearts uh, long to be in a place that they aren't. But for this person... It is those who actually live and work in this place that are so head over heels for God's presence. Why is that? And while there are many reasons for this, the one that this psalm seems to highlight in the first four verses is the invitation that this God extends to those who would come and to be in his presence. Look at verse 3 with me. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for himself, herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. In the Bible, the sparrow is often used as a symbol for something that is almost worthless. You might recall Jesus' words in Matthew 10 are not two sparrows sold for a penny. And yet what? Even the sparrow finds a home. The author of this psalm sees something about God that is so warm, that is so good, that even the worthless of this world are invited and find a home in his presence. Think about that in a couple ways with me. First, in the ancient Near East, what did one have to do in order to be in the presence of the gods in the first place? They had had to perform. They had to do something to get his attention. They had to be born often in a certain lineage with some Gods. And in some religions, being in God's presence or just being noticed by God wasn't even an option. Yet here's a God who says, come to me. 
Not just the elite and the powerful, but the lowly and the worthless. They are the ones who find a home in my presence. That's the kind of God this writer serves every morning. I dare to, or, <clears throat> yeah, so, um, moving on, not just the sparrows that we read, but the swallows as well. Um, what's a swallow? It is said to be a bird that is always in the air, right? That is always flying around, always moving from point to point, doing something, working, building. But it's a bird that never seems to find rest. The swallow then is a symbol of restlessness. And for the psalmist, it is the restless uh, who are invited and who find a home in God's presence in this psalm as well. We understand needing rest from physical exhaustion. Uh, But for many of us, most of our unrest is not necessarily physical unrest. It is emotional unrest. It is psychological unrest or relational unrest. It's what many call the unrest from being in places where you are not safe, right? Where you are not known. But God's presence here, his house, is a place where people feel known and safe and where they belong. It is a place where both of these needs are met for the author. Where one is safe, where one is known as well, as I said. And if you've ever experienced that with someone or some place, and you, you begin to see and enter in why the psalmist longs to be in God's presence. There's an episode of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee uh, by Jerry Seinfeld. If you've ever seen it, he interviews a, a comedian in each episode. And in this episode, he was interviewing one of my favorites, Martin Short. And if you don't know, Martin Short has been going on tour with Steve Martin. And uh, for the past couple of years, they've been doing their comedy show. And in this interview in Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, Martin Short is talking about that tour with Steve Martin. He's talking about why he thinks Steve does it. And, and one of the little old things that, 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 that Martin Short says is, I think Steve does it because he gets so excited about every show because he always comes up with one joke, one new joke for that audience. And it's just so funny to watch him because he'll be in the back room and he'll just be getting so excited talking about this joke, talking about, you know, the delivery of it and, and, and just anticipating the crowd's response. So Martin Short goes on to say, so, we'll, so, so the best nights, though, are when we get out there and Steve Martin delivers the joke and it gets nothing. Right, the whole place is just silent. And then Martin Short says, says and then I'll look at him. And just grin. And he says, we'll just lose it on the stage. Right? And he goes on to say this in this interview. If I can find my place. He says, and then after the show, we're drinking a glass of wine, loving this failure. Right? Have you ever experienced that with somebody? Right? Have you ever experienced that where, you know, you just have to look at somebody. And there is just sort of this sense of, joy and laughter and rest because you are known because they understand you it can be the funniest and the best of moments why because it's a safe place it's where you're known it's what we were made for and what we experience in god's presence think about got too many sheets here um Yeah, the psalmist is saying God's presence is the place that he finds rest because it's the place that he experiences and feels valued. 
the most and where he is known the most. Thus, our first beatitude of the psalm there in verse 4, blessed or happy are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Before we leave this point, I, I dare to say that the places that we have longed to be this week or maybe perhaps have found ourselves, period, were places that made us feel valued and welcomed and known. Those places that have made us feel worthy and not worthless. And some of those places and some of those people that we run to, they are good places. But such is the lure as well of our greatest vices, isn't it? What, what, what do things like pornography and excessive alcohol and gossip and our greed, what do they all have in common? Just to name a few. They all make us feel wanted. They all make us feel valuable. They all make us feel worthy or better than somebody else. And the promise to give us that is why we often find ourselves running to those things in the first place. And the psalmist knows this by experience, as we'll see. But he has found a different place to run for those things. And that is where true value and worth are found With God being in his house, where even a sparrow builds his nest. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 10, after saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What an invitation. What an invitation. And it is this invitation of God for the psalmist to be in his house, to be in his place, to reside there. That we can then begin to enter into the joy and the longing that he has to be in his presence. But let's keep going. This is the invitation of God that any and all, even the worthless, can find rest and belonging in his house. Second, the strength found in God there, verses 5 to 9. What's important to note about this second section is the change in person. The author goes from speaking in the first person in that first section in those first four verses to speaking in the second person. In other words, he is not speaking of himself anymore as we move into verses 5 to 9, but is thinking of someone else. Right, perhaps thinking of somebody who is making the journey to Zion or somebody who can't make it to Zion where God's presence was, was met and experienced in a very special way, but who longs to. No one of us, no one for sure, as we look at verses 5 to 7, knows where the valley of Baca is, um, but it literally means weeping. And so as we look at this and read this, the author is thinking of the faithful sojourner who is making his or her way to Jerusalem and how they will turn a place of mourning into blessing. The way the rains are a blessing to dry places, but why? Why will they do that? How will they do that? Because they will find their strength, as the text says, in the Lord. And in verse 7, what reads strength to strength in the ESV is literally from stronghold to stronghold. So the picture is for this person that he is thinking of, that as they journey closer to God, as they go closer to the mountain where the temple is, they get stronger and stronger as they go. Why is this the case? 
Why does he or she move from strength to strength the closer they get to Zion? Well, another way to translate stronghold is also rampart. I don't know what a rampart is. A rampart is a defensive structure. It is a protective barrier. And the picture the psalmist now has for us as the journey is made to Zion is as you would pass rampart after rampart, getting closer and closer to the city, you are what? Being reminded of the faithfulness of God to protect his people, to protect his city, to, to, to make good on his promises to Israel. Golden Gate writes this concerning the ramparts or strongholds that one would pass by as they move closer and closer to the city, that such a walk reminds the walkers of the great deeds of Yahweh in looking after the city and its people. What an image. What an image. This is how the pilgrim moves from strength to strength, being reminded not of their great strength or their great deeds but of the great strength and deeds of God to fight for his people. We will study the book of Joshua this fall. And one of the major themes that we will look at in the book of Joshua is this refrain of how God will fight for Israel, how God will fight for his people. This is where they are to draw their strength, not in themselves, but in the mighty deeds of God. And what this means for Israel, what it means for you this morning is having a longing for God's presence begins with looking to him for your strength, for your worth, and for your power, not in yourself. There's an article uh, done, uh, an an interview, an article of the interview done with J.I. Packer, um, who this is back in 2016, who, if you don't know, J.I. Packer's is an author, theologian, and he was 89 at the time. And the reason they wanted to interview him is because he was ending the, or reaching the end of his career uh, because his, he was having some severe problems with his eyesight, which was actually causing him to go blind. And it had gotten so bad up to the point of this interview that he literally had to stop his writing Um, and his preaching and his teaching because of his eyesight. And so then one of the questions the interview asks is, is, you know, how how have you responded to this? How how have you responded to your your sight going? Um, Which J.I. Packer, only J.I. Packer could say, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's up to. And I've had enough experience of his goodness in all sorts of ways not to have any doubt about the present circumstances. Some good, something for his glory is going to come out of it. It's in the face of losing his sight, right? And of course, if I was, if this was going to happen to me, I hope that I would have at least half um, of the response that J.I. Packer would have about this. But he demonstrates for us what it looks like to know where your strength come from, comes from. And you could look at his circumstances in two ways. You could say he is losing the very thing that gave him his worth in his life, his career, his status, his ability to write and to speak. He's losing his livelihood. Which would be the words of one relying what on themselves, looking to themselves for their strength and power. Or as Packer looks at it, one could say he's only losing one of God's good gifts. But he still has the good gift giver himself. That, that, that is where his victory is found. And it's here that both of these first two points then begin to come together as far as longing to be in God's presence, friends. 
And that is this, you will never long to dwell in the house of the Lord, in his presence, if you are still relying on your own strength. Your own power to fix your life. To protect, maybe, what is most dear to you. To hope in strategies and in politics and in our money and in our resources. You will never long to dwell in the house of the Lord in his presence if you are still relying on yourself. As long as J.I. Packer is relying on himself for strength, he will never desire right, to be in God's presence. In fact, losing something as precious as one's, as one's eyesight, no matter what the age, would only serve to embitter one towards God for what he is doing to them. The same is true for us. We go from strength to strength in the Christian life by relying and remembering the great deeds of God on our behalf, not on ourselves. And this is why we come to the table every week. To be reminded of the great deeds of God on our behalf, but also what? To repent of the ways that we have looked to ourselves for what only God can do for us. The psalmist has surrendered trying to do it all and understand it all and fix it all by himself. There is no wellspring of strength here except in the Lord. So for the psalmist and for us, the more we trust in the Lord to fight for us, which finds its ultimate expression, y'all, in the cross of Jesus Christ, the more we begin to long to dwell what at his feet, to be in his presence. This is finding strength in God, not in ourselves. And this gets then to our last point, the life-givingness of God. I'm aware that that's a made-up word. That's not a real word, but it's our word this morning. So we've seen the invitation of God this morning, uh, the invitation for those to dwell with him, to find rest in him where the worthless can belong. We've seen uh, what it looks like to find your strength in God by recalling the great deeds of God to fight for his people. Now the psalmist comes back, if you notice, to speaking in the first person in the last few verses of this psalm, reflecting even on his own life's experiences and how God has treated him personally. This is, this is a conclusion for him. This is a final analysis for him. As he reflects on God's ways towards him, he sees that all is grace to him, which is how he begins to long to be in God's presence. And this is what I'm calling the life-givingness of God, God's grace to us, to give us himself. For what is more gracious than God's invitation to be in his presence when we don't deserve it? When none of us deserve it. None of us did anything this week to deserve it. But for the blood of Jesus. To dwell with him, to, to, to know him, and to be known What is more gracious than an invitation? What is more gracious than a God who fights for us when what? We run the other way. We ignore his kindness to us. Grace is always life-giving because it is undeserved. And it is the seed of any and all longing to be with God in the first place. Grace is the only thing that will move your heart to saying, I would say, move your heart from bitterness to saying better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. 
as we think about that, as we think about what it means for God's grace to shine upon us in his invitation and in his uh, strength for us, we begin to see that grace is where longing starts for all of us. And the chances are that if you've grown up in a church like myself, the chances are that as you think about what it means for you to long for God, you typically or probably have wrestled with one of two things. You either long for God because you think this is what Christians should do. You think this is what is expected of you. So you put on that mask. Or you long for God because you think this is what others want from you. So we come to church and we do the church things. And we do this stuff that, that, that sort of mimics Christianity. That's what we think we're supposed to do. That's what we think others want for us. But the only way that we actually truly begin to long for God what is seeing the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. Which then what? That propels us to want to be in his presence. If we are starting from the beginning point of just sort of mimicking or doing something because we think this is what we're supposed to do, we will grow tired. We will be confused with what this Christianity thing is always about. But for the psalmist and for us, our starting place has got to be with God's grace. Where and when have you experienced that in your life? Right. Because what this psalm should be doing for us as we read it then is it should be causing us to recount the areas or the seasons in our life where grace tasted the sweetest. And you could take that as a first application point from this psalm. Where and when did you first experience this? When was the last time you've tasted grace in your life this morning? Where in your life has God met you, invited you to be with him when you knew you didn't deserve it? Oftentimes we have to go back to the places where we found ourselves receiving Christ in the first place in our life, right? where that grace was, was so sweet and so tangible because it is there that we begin to understand and want to long to be with God in the first place. This is the grace of God that is life-giving life and protecting to us at the same time. You notice there in verse 11, it says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold for those who walk uprightly. That word translated favor there is the word for grace in the Hebrew. What gives life to the psalmist is the grace of God to him. And the same is true for us. This is his conclusion. He is one who doesn't deserve his invitation, but he gets it. He is one who benefits from God's mighty deeds when he runs the other way. And experience this grace is the only thing that will awaken your heart to desire to be in his presence presence. Dare I say long, yes, even faint for him. As much as it's hard sometimes for my own cynicism to get that out of my mouth. What we are not prepared for, though, as we leave this song and we move further into the New Testament, is the extent at which God will show us his grace and favor in Jesus Christ. It's what the psalmist couldn't predict, and it's what we are not prepared, prepared, prepared for as we read Jesus' coming in the New Testament. Jesus is the fullness of God's imitation to himself this morning, friends. In his words, come to me, what all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will what? Give you rest. Jesus is the fullness of God's strength and power for us, which is made perfect in our weakness as he fights on our behalf by living and dying for us. And what this means is you are invited this day to be with God regardless of how worthless or how guilty or how shameful you feel. 
Because the cross of Jesus is a rampart for you this morning. It is the mighty deed God has performed on your behalf to keep you safe, to protect you by removing your sin with his blood. And seeing that type of grace is the only thing that has the power and the beauty to move us to longing to be with him in his presence the way that Psalm 84 talks about it. Which brings us back to where we started. Why does the psalmist long to be with God? And how do we begin to have that longing? You don't fake it. You don't walk around doing something because you think other people want you to live this way and act this way. No, rather, you look upon Jesus, the grace of God made flesh for us. His desire for us to be with him. This is the how, right? the grace of God, but why? Why? Why would you long to be with God, though? Uh, as you look at his grace this morning, you see the how, but why would you? And it's, and it's as we get to the end of the psalm, we get to the end of, uh, of what we have, have seen in his invitation and his strength and his grace to us that we realize that God and Jesus Christ has longed to be with you way before you ever longed to be with him. And that's the why of the sermon. When you begin to see that and recognize that, that his longing to be with you, he has longed to be with you way before you ever longed to be with him. That's the why we begin to want to be in his presence. Right? That he has longed to be with you way before you ever knew who he was. Right? Way before you ever got right with God. Way before you ever made any profession of faith. Way before you even gave a nod to him and cared about him. He longed for you. And that should stir something within us. Look, have you ever wondered why we get, and for some of us in this room, why we got so excited over the first crush in our lives? There's a reason people remember that. Or even how we can't stay away from the gossip of relationships and who's dating who. We light up inside when someone takes interest in us. When someone looks at you and says, you're worth it. Right? That's not by mistake, friends. That is by design. We were made for that, but we were made to find that ultimately in God himself. But we messed that up in the garden. But it never what? Stopped God from pursuing and going after and longing after you. It's a story of scripture. And it's on the pages of scripture that we come into contact with the life-giving grace of God that says that you are worth it. Do you know that this morning? Do you know how much God is saying to you through this song that I long to be with you? And the more that we get that grace in us over a lifetime, the more we begin to share in a psalm like this. Which is why we preach. It's why we teach. It's why we take the sacrament every week. It's why we pray. It's why we do Bible study and things like VBS. It's why we do none of those things solely by ourselves, but in the context of community, a church family together, because all of us have made vows to aid one another by the Holy Spirit and getting the grace of God in us. The grace that says you're worth it. The grace that says, do you know how much God longs to be with you? Hang in there.
Come to church. Come to my small group. I want you to taste this and see how we begin to long for God is by his grace. Why we begin to long for it is because we begin to see that he longed for us way before we ever longed for him. So a couple of questions. What will you do with that information, that knowledge this morning? Is this just sort of in one ear and out the other? What will you do with that information or that knowledge this morning? Does it scare you to think that someone could actually love you this much? As we look at the love of Jesus for you in Scripture. What would it look like to take a step towards receiving the grace of Jesus for you this morning? What are the questions does this create for you? And would you be willing to talk about those things with someone? What does the grace mean for those around you, for your neighbors, for the people in this room you know or don't know? What does this grace mean for those around you? Are there qualifications, friends, to who we invite into our lives, to those we fight for, that need to go away? How does love like this not begin to change us. To see God's longing for us way before we ever longed for him. I have a friend who loves frozen custard. And uh, <clears throat> he loves it so much that he once drove about six hours out of his way to St. Louis to get it. There's a place in St. Louis called Ted Drew's. And, uh, uh, and I've been there. If you've been there, you almost can understand why someone would drive six hours out of your way. It's kind of that good. Um, they call these things concretes. And he was a seminary student, but it was during the summer, so he didn't have much to do. And he was driving from Knoxville to Memphis. You're looking at the map, Knoxville to Memphis. And in, instead of getting on 40 as he hit Nashville, he decided to stay on 24 and just drive the four and a half hours to St. Louis, pull into Ted Drew's, get out, buy two large concrete, vanilla concretes, get back in the car, and then get on... 55 South for the four-hour drive to Memphis. It's like an extra eight and a half hours. Well, he would say it's two and a half hours from Nashville to Memphis. So subtract that from eight and a half, it's really six hours. Totally worth it. Um, I've even asking him about this lately. Um, he said I would do it again. If I could, it was one of the best decisions I made that year. Um, I'm pretty sure he wasn't married at this time. But, um, but he said it was awesome. And as I think about that story and I think about him going to get this, I think about the, you know, oh, for the joy set before him, right? To drive all that way for some frozen custard. That's how much he loves it. It's a little weird. I get it. Look, all of us have longings this morning in us, right? All of us do. All of us love something enough that we would drive six hours for it. Some of us wouldn't even think about it. We have loved ones we would drive six hours for. We have, um, I don't know, there's a concert or a sporting event we would go, when you think twice about driving six hours for, because we longed to be there, we wanted to be there. For some of us, it is just, it's, it's a place, right? It's just, I want to stare at that beach. Um, for some of us, it's just the desire to get out and experience something new. Whatever that is for you, 
I need you to take that this morning as we leave here, and I need you to begin to imagine this week that whatever that love and that longing is for you to go and do that, that that is but a mere fraction of the love and the longing Jesus has for you this very second. Who didn't just drive six hours, right, out of his way to be with you, but came to earth taking on flesh to suffer for you so that he could have you who endured the cross because of the joy set before him, which was you. Only when we understand and see how much God longs to be with us in Jesus Christ will we ever, ever begin to long to be with him. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the words that we have looked at in your psalm. And we, we, we want to be a people who, who share this same sentiment, who can't think of anything better but being in your presence. But if we're honest, that isn't the way that we feel all the time and it isn't what we want all the time. There are so many other good things and places in this world that get our attention But we know where that ends and we know where lasting and longing, uh, permanent love and rest is found. And that is only found at your feet and your presence. Would you break us of the ways that we are looking for these things in all the wrong places? And would you do that by replacing that with your beauty, with your grace to us? This morning, And would you give us the ability to begin contemplating the reality that you long to be with us, period. But that you long to be with us way before we ever knew who you were. We give you thanks for that. Go with us now as we meet together to eat at your table. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.